The Science Show on RN, where we featured a splendid book on the Huxley family a few weeks ago. It's my book of the year. But what does the hard-to-please botanist Peter Bernhardt make of it? Peter. A single biography covering the lives of two or more members of the same family is not too unusual, provided it's about a line of kings and queens. Well, some historians would view the House of Huxley as a sort of science royalty, especially the impact Thomas Henry Huxley and his grandson, Julian, had on the study of animal anatomy, development, and behavior. That is precisely what you will read in The Huxleys, An Intimate History of Evolution by Alison Bashford, a professor of history at the University of New South Wales. If you are a committed reader, you must prepare for a long journey as the text of 423 pages covers 150 years. More important, the lives of both men are not presented in the usual linear manner. You won't read the first half of the book about the grandfather and then end with the life cycle of his grandson. Professor Bashford has something far more cerebral in mind. She wants us to compare and contrast the lives of both men at the same time, so the book divides into ten chapters addressing four interconnected topics. It's a novel approach and tends to work well most of the time because you come to appreciate convergence and divergence. Both men suffered from what today we would call bipolar disorder. Thomas was always faithful to his wife. Julian was not. Grandfather and grandson spent years studying apes, but Thomas dissected them and measured their skulls, while Julian, a founder of what we call ethology, the science of animal behavior, preferred to observe live ones. Thomas described the tissues of the noxious Portuguese man of war. Julian was stung by one. Despite Thomas's great friendship with Darwin, it took him a surprisingly long time to accept the pivotal role of natural selection. In contrast, Julian would come to view this synthesis of genes and selection as enchanting and superior to spirituality. One wonders if he took his childhood love of the book The Water Babies just a little too far. I much appreciated the author's commitment to defining the careers of both Huxleys. Although I've read Julian's memoirs, Bashford gives us the best account of what he did while he was secretary of the Zoological Society of London and innovative director of its zoo. In fact, Bashford will convince you that Julian was Attenborough before Attenborough became Attenborough. Also, I didn't know Thomas Huxley was so obsessed with variation in human bodies. He amassed a collection of photos of native peoples in the 1870s, then criticized racist scientists who once justified slavery by twisting anatomical evidence. The reader is also exposed to quite a lot of the poignant and opinionated poetry written by both men. Admittedly, some parts of the book work much better than others. 
the author largely exiles Julian's son, Anthony Huxley, the botanist. She believes plant studies are too passive to fit into Thomas and Julian's dynamic visions of evolution. Professor Bashford, I don't think Charles Darwin would have agreed with you on that point, and you might have considered reading Anthony's own book, Plant and Planet, 1974, before writing such a sentence. While Professor Bashford is far superior to almost every other professional historian writing about biologists, she's not always comfortable with our terminology or why and how scientists select certain species as model systems. The impact of Julian's seminal paper on the courtship behavior of great crested grebes is really about the selective benefits of what we now call pair bond reinforcement. Likewise, it's much easier to understand why Julian chose to do hormone experiments with a salamander now sold in pet shops as axolotls, provided you understand the word pedomorphosis. Unlike frogs, toads, newts, axolotls retain their larval gills and tail fins as sexually mature adults. By feeding them thyroid extracts, Julian's aquarium of Peter Pan's lost their gills and tail fins and expanded their lungs until they could walk and breathe on land. His paper, published in 1920, is still cited, and axolotls remain valued lab animals in endocrinology and limb regeneration labs. Readers would have benefited more if the author had taken the time to explain the ongoing value of the work of both Huxley's to modern research. In fact, I think the author wastes a few pages. This includes tying colonialism tropes to minor characters with unneeded Aussie snark. In particular, why expend so much space to lion-loving Joy Adamson, author of Born Free? Yes, her legacy can't hold a candle to that of Jane Goodall's, but the two wrote about African animals for very different reasons, and the results are judged differently by pet owners and primatologists. Let me make it clear, though, that Bashford's book is for everyone curious about two men who championed, defended, and developed new disciplines within evolutionary biology and conservation over the last two centuries. In an earlier interview on The Science Show, Bashford and Robin showed how the Huxleys were tied to Australia, but they didn't mention one connection in the book. To show that variation between human skulls was too minor to prove that different races had different origins, Thomas Huxley compared the cranium of aboriginals to those of Europeans. I'd add one more tie-in missed by the author. Julian Huxley's paper on Great Crested Grebes, still cited a century after its publication, is based on a bird with such a broad, old-world distribution, it is recorded on freshwater in all Australian states. It was so familiar to an earlier generation that children's author May Gibbs added a Great Crested Grebe as a minor character to one of her gumnut baby stories. 
I'm sure Robin will tell us the title. Yes, Peter, it was Chucklebud and Wonky Doo by Mae Gibbs. And Gibbs fan Professor Peter Bernhardt is in St. Louis, Missouri. And I think Alison Bashford's book on the Huxleys is a triumph.